Hello, this is the Heart of the Piano podcast. Before we dive into this episode, I'd like to say an enormous thank you to the C. Bechstein Piano Centre in Manchester, England, for letting me use their practice and teaching rooms to record these podcast episodes. The rooms are soundproofed, which makes them ideal for podcast recording and practicing and teaching, of course, and five of the rooms are equipped with lovely Bechstein grand pianos. It's a brand new, stunning-looking showroom filled with a great selection of pianos, so if you're looking for a piano and you're based in the UK, do come to the C. Bechstein Piano Centre in the centre of Manchester. You can check out their website at bechstein.co.uk. And now, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Heart of the Piano podcast. Hello and welcome to the Heart of the Piano podcast. I am here with my friend Cheryl. Uh, Cheryl, some of you may recognise from uh, one of the previous episodes where we were looking at how understanding the brain hemispheres uh, could be of use practically when learning a new piece. So uh, basically today we're looking at ideas to do with autonomy, uh, particularly to do with um, something called self-determination theory. At its core, self-determination theory is fundamentally very, very basic, but I've been trying to work my way through a massive, massive book uh, of 700 pages plus, and it's a big book, which is very, very dense academic writing. If anyone wants to check it out, this book is, uh, I've really sold it to everyone now, this book is called Self-Determination Theory, Basic Psychological Needs and Motivation Development and Wellness by Richard Ryan and uh, Edward Deci. Um, Now, I asked Cheryl, uh, to have a look at a video, because I think that this, what was it, about an hour long, this video? Uh, uh, an yeah, hour and a half? about an hour and a half with yeah. questions and things, yeah. And so this is a, a video by one of the authors of this book, and one of the, the, the and, and, you know, obviously these two authors are the founders of this theory. And this hour and a half video does a pretty good job of, of an introduction to the, to, to the most important points of self-determination theory. I'm working my way through this book, and it can be, incredibly complicated, nuanced. There's a lot of very, very interesting, detailed um, observations about human nature, about motivation, all kinds of stuff. But I'm going to try and sum up at the beginning of this podcast episode very briefly the basic points of self-determination theory. Now, it's very unfortunate because they decided that the acronym for self-determination theory is SDT. (laughs) To to a lot of people, that probably means something completely different. (laughs) But but I I might refer to it as SDT uh, as as I'm talking about it. And and it is self-determination theory, not something else. (laughs) So anyway, the basic, basic points um, of self-determination theory is that there are three basic psychological needs. And these are needs. They're not desires or wants or it would be nice to have this, but the authors argue that these are universal needs and when we don't have these needs met, that we suffer and we have ill-being. And when the needs are met, we have psychological well-being. So the three things are autonomy, competency, and relatedness. I'll just repeat them again. Autonomy, competency and relatedness. And they are the three basic psychological needs. The most interesting application of how we look at these basic psychological needs are looking at the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. Cheryl, what's your understanding of intrinsic and extrinsic motivation? Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm not an expert. I'll just put that out. So I've only watched this video a couple of times and I'm not sure I understood it fully anyway. So um, but, I'll just but, but you, it. <laughs> you've come across the concept of intrinsic and extrinsic motivation before? Mm, 
Motivation, yes. Okay. Um, intrinsic, extrinsic. I, I probably have heard it and I've never stopped and thought about it. Ever. Uh, okay. So this was the first time I actually stopped and thought about it and thought, oh, how does this apply to me? Does it apply to me? Uh -huh. um, so my understanding of intrinsic motivation is that it's a, a what well, it's a, it's a motivation that's internal that you are internally motivated in some way, so just yourself, as opposed to some uh, extrinsic motivation. So there is something outside of you, external to you, that is motivating you to do it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in the book, it, it actually talks about some of the philosophical foundations of their theory. And there's chapters where they go into deep, deep stuff about the foundations of Western philosophy, Eastern philosophy, even Buddhism, and how this relates to what is intrinsic, what is autonomous, and it gets very, very deep. So there's a lot of talk in this self-determination theory book that I mentioned earlier, which is like the core academic textbook about all of this. And it spends a long time trying to define what is autonomy? because this can be a very, very difficult concept to pin down psychologically, philosophically. And so in this particular theory, when we do something, do we believe, do we think, do we feel that that comes from something deep inside us, that this is something that we want, that we volitionally want, that we believe this is our willpower? Or do we believe that this comes from outside of us, that it's that somebody else wants this, that, that we're being coerced into doing this, that we're doing this reluctantly? And so they, they sort of spend a while defining this is probably the clearest way of trying to define what autonomy is. Um, we feel that it comes from inside of us and it is our willpower, it's our volition. According to self-determination theory, there is a continuum, there are various different levels of the things that motivate us from something which it just comes completely from inside of us to the complete opposite where we are being coerced into it. Now, when we were sort of thinking, what is intrinsic motivation? What is extrinsic motivation? What is autonomy? Autonomy, it's such an interesting thing to pin down because sometimes we think we're being autonomous, but we're kind of not. When we live in a culture, the culture usually gives us certain kinds of values that we can internalize, and we believe that they are our values. So, for example, in Western cultures, Western cultures very commonly emphasize individualist values or consumerist values. Um, so capitalist, consumerist, individualist values. It's, it's important that we live in a culture where we can say whatever we want, where we have free will, people don't control us. Um, it's, it's more about my rights as an individual versus the rights of the collective, which we saw recently about COVID. But let's not go too much into that one. <laughs> um, and, um, and a lot of the time we believe that, that, you know, they are our values. But it really, we don't know a lot of the time how much they are our values that come from deep within us that that you know this is me as as a, as a unique individual and how much culture has has sort of made us identify with those values and conversely people from some eastern cultures believe very strongly in in the collective in 
the needs of the community as being more important maybe uh, than their own individual preferences. And there's a whole continuum of all of that kind of stuff. And what's very interesting about self-determination theory, and I try not to get too deep and too heavy into this, is that they have shown that these theories apply just as much to collectivist cultures, Eastern cultures, as they do to Western individualist cultures. But this is huge and you kind of need to start reading the book <laughs> to get a lot more of, of this kind of stuff. Now, I, yeah, again, I think very often when I start talking about this stuff, a lot of people listening might go, what on earth has this got to do with music? Now, it's just so nice because so much of what I've been teaching for years is so neatly and so nicely covered by self-determination theory in ways that I've kind of struggled to really deeply explain, but with which self-determination theory gets so, so well. Uh, at this point, any thoughts on any of this so far, Cheryl? Loads. Lots of thoughts. Yes. <laughs> lots, lots of thoughts. Um, okay. I think it's more, uh, it's probably better if we just carry on with the conversation. Hopefully they'll all just Well, come well give us one way. of the thoughts because maybe that might yeah. jump into... Uh, a conversation. Yes. So, um, yeah, definitely. So the first thing that stuck with me um, when I, well, it sort of struck me, I suppose, uh, when I was listening to this podcast was the uh, extrinsic, intrinsic motivation. So I think, first of all, I thought intrinsic motivation... I feel like I don't have it as much for the piano as I think I should. Right. Well, I think I should. I mean, that's another whole thing to say as well. I think I <laughs> should, should. is it's a, just, great yeah, a great word that we are going to talk about. Yeah, should. Um, um, compared to compared to other things that I do, for example, where I feel like I... So for me, intrinsic motivation it feel, it sort of means to me that you, you do the thing purely for the love of doing that thing. Mm-hmm as opposed to you're doing it because you feel like you should. <laughs> yes. You see what I mean? Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. I love that word should because, um, so one of the major findings from SDT, I'm never going to take that acronym seriously, but yeah, one of, one of the major <laughs> findings is that rewards for specific things. So you do a specific thing, you get a reward. And the reward doesn't necessarily have to be uh, material. They're, they're all kinds of ways of rewarding uh, people. But basically, that undermines people's sense of intrinsic motivation. And you can measure over and over and over again, um, whether it's in students and whether they're young students or college students, university students, um, or whether it's, it's people in a work environment, that when you reward people for doing specific tasks, or for doing well in exams, or uh, yeah, just basically specific rewards, they do not do as well. Highly controversial. What, what do you think about that, Cheryl? It, well, it, it's, 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 I can sense that it's true, but when, when my I suppose, left brain is like fighting in at this point, um, which is, but that is exactly how we're brought up as kids, isn't it? From like day one in school, where you know you're you have you, know, you go through school you get rewards your 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 parents reward you for eating the right food they, it's everything everywhere all the time and that 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 happens yes. all the way through and i think it's only when i think i would say in my early to mid 20s where learning for myself so you know learning a language learning um reading complicated books for myself because i'm intrinsically motivated to do that um it's a different kind of way of, of learning and it's actually far more enjoyable, but that is exactly not how the way that they, they, sorry, like people yes. 
teach you when your kids growing up? Well, you say that, but yet there's again this is covered in so much depth in this massive giant academic book, because、uh, they look in a lot of depth at school environments,、mm. and what they find is that when they do very detailed questionnaires and tests, and and they look at teaching styles, when a teacher teaches in a way that is more geared towards the autonomy of the students, even young students. The students are more motivated and do better. But yes, one of the things that that the authors kind of do point out is that in most educational environment for for young children, motivation just very does very gradually just go down as a result of this emphasis on extrinsic motivation. But there are that you know there's a whole continuum of this, and it is possible to teach in ways that actually can. Foster more autonomy in the students, but when teachers teach in a more controlling way and in a way that is more driven by reward and punishment, then motivation goes down and results go down. But just because, like, like obviously we are we are coerced to be in school; it's not an option.、Mm-hmm. But you know, it is a continuum. Some learning environments are more interested in the individuality of students and giving them choices. Choice is a massive thing, but but also sort of. More interested in in the、um, the choices of children, but also there are other findings as well.、Uh, there's so much nuance to this that if you explain to children why they're learning something, they're also going to be more likely to get on board with it because they can internalize why why they're doing something. So so this sort of what what we were talking about with autonomy and the the you know the perceived locus of of you know do I want to be doing this? That you know am I doing this volitionally?、Um, if a teacher Just says you must do well on this, and doesn't tell you why. And they're not a, a nice teacher. They don't act like they like you. They, they're quite a cold teacher, and they're very authoritative. And you, you're you're not going to really do very well at that. But if you bond with your teacher, and they're warm, and you you respect them, and you like them as a human being, and they explain why you're doing all of this stuff, you're actually going to. Feel more autonomy about why you're doing that kind of stuff. So there's there's very subtle levels and layers and 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 a spectrum of all of this kind of stuff. So yeah, you know, on on at, at first sight, it seems very basic and simplistic, but there's a lot of nuance to all of this kind of stuff that that we can test.、Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely. So the、uh, I was thinking when you when you're talking particularly about maths and science.、So、obviously, these are the <laughs> these are the subjects that you have to do well in in school,、um, and of course, these are the ones that you have to do all the way through up until you're you know you you leave、uh, when you're sixteen or eighteen now,、mm. and.、Um, I think that's always been a key problem with, particularly maths.、Um, mm. I remember sitting in school. I actually love maths, but in school I hated maths, <laughs> and I hated maths because no one really sort of explained to me why am I learning Pythagoras' theorem, for example? <laughs> why am I learning this? You know, I could understand learning about interest rates and adding up, multiplying all these things, because it's so obviously related to money. Kind of that's obvious, but I don't think anyone. Sort of spelled it out to me, which would have been something like, "Well, you might not need Pythagoras' theorem ever in your life. However, if you decide to become, if you want to be an architect or or something that may use that type of theory, that door is open to、yes. you."、And、you think, "Okay, well, that's keeping my options open," but no one says that. <laughs> <laughs> so,、um, yeah, that 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 would be very good if teachers、mm. would do that a lot more. 
But it, and, it, and it can also be something as simple that if you have a maths teacher who you like as a human yes. being, you're probably going to do better in that subject. And I remember 100%. I liked my maths teachers. And, and I, I never hated maths, but I never had a maths teacher that I really didn't like. And, mm. and, uh, and I think that, you know, where I went to school, like the, the teachers taught in a way that the emphasis was on how you could find it interesting. And I think not, not everyone's going to be that lucky. No, and that is key. Mm. Definitely. Yeah. So, yes. It, it, yeah. I think it's really useful to realize that with autonomy, it's not just you're autonomous or you're not autonomous. You have intrinsic or, or extrinsic. There's a whole sort of in between. Something else I also actually should have pointed out ages ago. And then I promise, I promise that we'll get soon to how this has <clears throat> very practical uh, application to music is that autonomy absolutely does not mean do whatever you want. It doesn't mean freedom. Autonomy is not the same as personal freedom. You can be very dependent on, on people, but feel a total sense of autonomy that you are willingly having their help. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you, you can feel autonomy from parents, um, depending on your, your parents' parenting style, but that, that doesn't mean that, that you necessarily have freedom. And actually, again, in, in the book, there's some quite interesting findings that the teenagers who the most quickly get freedom from their parents in many ways are the least autonomous because they very quickly succumb to peer pressure from, from their friends and, and they don't act in ways that reflect true autonomy because they're, they're basically just running away from what was perceived as, you know, harsh uh, parenting. So, so basically autonomy is, is not the same as just complete freedom to do whatever you want. It's, it's basically, do you feel willing to do the things that you're doing? It doesn't mean, um, and, and, you know, you, you can be feeling a part of the herd, feeling a part of the, the group of people who you're with and, and falling in with their norms and doing whatever that is. You can have a sense of autonomy while doing that. So I just want to make that like super, super clear because there, there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding about that, I think. So yes, the word should that you were mm -hmm. using before. So, so there, there's, there's various layers of, of having autonomy where the, the purest sense of autonomy is that it really does, does come from this place very, very clearly inside of you. So the different levels of uh, motivation from extrinsic to intrinsic, it has many, many different levels and should fall sort of somewhere in, in the middle of these. So if we look at extrinsic motivation, which is like being controlled from the outside. So, so the, the purest sense of that is reward and punishment. So you do well, you are obviously rewarded for that thing. Uh, you do badly, uh, you, you are pan. I mean, it's, it's pretty self-evident. The problem with that, because that's how so much of our culture believes that things should be, like especially business and, and managers in business, they believe that that's how human beings are. And actually, I'm going to come back to this, but the, like one of the leading psychologists who, who argued for this was, was Skinner. And I'm going to talk about Skinner and his, and his Skinner, uh, the, what were called Skinner boxes, that he had rats that, that pressed levers. And so, so he believed that basically all human beings were fundamentally motivated by reward and punishment, by, by conditioning. Um, so as, as we move away from that, we then have this thing called introjection. And introjection is it sort of, it feels like it comes from inside. It's, it's like we've internalized the, the things that, that we've had from our teachers and parents. So 
it's, it's almost like we are punishing and rewarding ourselves. This is going to be very, very relevant to piano. So relevant. I'm always battling this in my students. You know, I've been noticing this for years. So um, uh, whenever we say should, this is interjection because where does that should come from? You know, ultimately, it doesn't come from somewhere deep, deep, deep inside our being. And, you know, we can get very philosophical about, you know, well, what is that? And it's something that is actually very difficult to define philosophically what that is. But, but we, I, I think we know it when we feel it. And so that should, at some point, came from somebody else or, or from culture or from outside of us. And we now sort of police ourselves with that, <laughs> if that makes sense. And then um, as we go... Uh, um, a step away from that, we then uh, move towards identification, where we identify with the thing that we're doing. And, and so identify when we play the piano. We, we are motivated to do that. Um, I'm not sure that playing the piano is like a deep internal need that, that we're, uh, you know, a deep autonomous feeling that we're born with. But, uh, you know, along the lines, people said, oh, this will be good for you. And then at some point, we, our internal um, the volition and what we want to do, and that fused and became one, and we identified with it. And then beyond that is what they call integration, which is like a pure, like what we want is, is absolutely what we're doing. So um, anyway, I, I hope I've explained it okay. You can read the book if, if you want to know more, more depth about that. So can I ask a question? Yes. Uh, sorry. So is it the case that something can start off, um, what was it? What was the first thing you said? Oh, was external, it ex external regulation. Yes. As an Reward external thing, right? Yeah. And then sort of over time, obviously, as everyone's you know, growing up from being a kid or anything, uh, is that this then goes through and it becomes an interjection and then goes through and eventually becomes uh, the last one. What was it? Integrated. Um, inter integration. integration. I mean, I think it can. It's more likely to go the other way around. That, that, oh. that, that in many ways that, that we do something because we love it. And enjoy it and then as people start mm. rewarding us for it and making us feel subtly manipulated to be good at it we then just go oh yeah i don't want to do this now turning hobbies into a job <laughs> turning hobbies into a job is fun yeah no i think i could i could see it go both ways yeah yeah absolutely yeah. yeah and i think a lot of like um a lot of my teaching style is trying to sort of um entice people and show people how to cultivate how we can develop our own autonomy and our own sense of, yes, this is why I want to do it, not just because a teacher is telling me, but it's very difficult as a teacher to get that to happen in my students because <laughs> it needs autonomy. How do you make that happen? It's incredibly challenging. And so that's why I spend so much time looking at, at you know, all of the, the, the psychological theories because I'm trying to explain to people in a way that is not just coercion. This is why I explain the stuff the way that I explain it. Um, <laughs> because if I tell you to do it, it's not going to have the same outcome. That, that lacks autonomy. Which is absolutely the difference, I think, between me learning piano pre-17, because uh, that's when I stopped um, yeah. learning grades, and then coming back to it as an adult, is that coming back to it as an adult without any grades, there's no pressure, you don't have to play this piece or you know learn all these scales and everything. Yes. Whereas before it was, you have to just hit all these milestones to, yeah. Yes. And so there is that feeling of, I have to do this, you know, particularly with scales, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. I have to learn all these millions yes. of scales yes. are never ending, especially at grade eight. And then, um, 
but then as an adult, you don't have to do all of that. You're so much more free. And so having, you know, finding a piece that you want to learn with no one, with no deadline, with no, there's no reason, you know, you're just doing it because you like it yourself. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, this kind is, of. this is so, so interesting and I cannot emphasize enough how this is like one of the most important things that I think that people can take away from this. Because, you know, I've, I've, we were talking in previous episodes about the brain hemispheres and about ego and the ego being a left hemisphere thing and this is harmful. So stay with this because I want to sort of show why this is so, so important. Now, when the authors of this theory talk about introjection, so introjection is when we are policing ourselves with like the, the reward and punishment that we've had from authority figures in the past. They also talk about how this is basically, introjection is, is ego involvement. It is, it is our ego. Our ego exists because it wants rewards and wants to avoid punishment. Um, and so it's about approval from other people and from ourselves. So introjection is self-approval and approval from others, as opposed to pure pure intrinsic motivation, which is not about approval. It's about the pure joy and love of doing something. And I'm going to come back to that. I'm going to come back to looking at what does it feel like? What does it look like? Pure um, intrinsic motivation, because that's so important. But what, it, what pure intrinsic motivation is not is doing something because we want a pat on the head and we want other people to go, wow, you're amazing. So any time that we come from that place, we are undermining our motivation and we are reducing the quality of what we can do, which the whole point of self-determination theory is showing that when we are, that the less we act from pure intrinsic motivation, the less well we do. And this is something that I have just seen so obviously, like all my life and that I try and show my students, but most of my adult students, like they stick their fingers in their ears and go, no, 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 I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that when I am playing and I want to play so that I feel good about myself and that I conquer this and other people think I'm amazing and that, that, that it doesn't work as well. Yeah, so you look like you desperately want to say something, Cheryl. Oh, this is me. I, mean, I shouldn't <laughs> maybe admit this, but it's, it absolutely describes where I am with the piano and it's, it, it's hot. It's actually a bit like oh to hear it now, but it's it's hit me like quite hard actually. <laughs> I'm absolutely which was the which was the one, um, the self self rewarding one. What did you say it was external? No, um, the introjection, ego involvement, approval from self yeah, and others. that is exact. Uh, that is certainly a proportion of it is uh, for me playing the piano. Yes, one hundred. And, and I would say that for pretty much every single adult student that, that I teach, and particularly the ones who've spent, who, who, who weren't amazing as, as kids, but pretty much every single adult who I teach is so stuck in this sense of everything is being done for the primary purpose of approval from the self and mm -hmm. others, which can also get projected onto the teacher. And you know, all the time when, when I teach people, I'm very, I very much try and get across this strong concept that when I'm teaching you, my role, my job is to show you how to play in the way that you can love the most. Your job as a, as, you know, if I put it that way, your yeah. job, and I'm going to put job in air quotes, is to basically love every moment of what you do. That's why you do it. That's intrinsic motivation. That is the definition of intrinsic motivation. 
which is why I said in one of my very last uh, podcast episodes, please go and listen to that, the number one psychological skill, the number one thing that you should be doing every moment that, that you are practicing is practicing looking for what there is to love. Because looking for what there is to love is the epitome of intrinsic motivation. Mm. That is why this is a skill you should be motivating, um, motivating yourself to do. But, you know, it's, it's also tricky because if I am telling you as a teacher, um, and, and I do say to my students, I nag them. So have you been looking for what there is to love? <laughs> and then suddenly it's no longer intrinsic. It's, it's such a catch 22. But yes. But, it, but I'm hoping to kind of cultivate and at some point my students have this waking up aha moment. Ah, I get it from inside me that, that, that like what I've been told to do. Oh, I see why I want to be doing that. And I'm going to do it now from inside me. Because the opposite of that is, is the this set of very unhelpful mental and emotional habits of Yes, everything I do, I have to try really hard because if I don't do well enough, people are going to criticize and say I'm not good enough and that feels horrible. And if it goes well, people go, wow, you're amazing and, and I feel good. Yeah. And if we're not careful, all of our piano playing becomes almost entirely about that. And yeah. that is the cause of almost all the problems in piano playing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the cause of tension in our posture as we play. That tension in our posture as we play causes bad technique. It, all, it, it changes the way that we focus on what we're doing. When we're focused on, on getting rewards and avoiding punishment, we're more likely to go into a left brain staring at everything. And when we stare at everything, we don't notice what our hands are doing. We don't naturally get good technique. We don't listen to what we're doing. It's like everything hinges on this. So hopefully I'm starting to mm. demonstrate why this is so blooming important, right? Yeah. And, you know, I'm always nagging my students and in a way which, which is so, you know, paradoxical because the more I nag them, the less it's going to feel like autonomy. <laughs> but, but, you know, hopefully this logical explanation is going to make people go, oh, you're right. Yes, this has to come from inside me. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's difficult because we have to notice when we start going into this, yes, I, I, must, I must do well, um, uh, so basically, in, in the sentence after that, I've also just taken very brief notes that says self-esteem and guilt, pride. <laughs> so these are things that follow on from that. Self-esteem is basically um, this very wobbly thing that, that, that when we do something well and people reward us and go, oh, you're good at that, we have approval, then we have self-esteem. But that's very unstable and wobbly because then if we do badly, that crumbles Mm. and and then we feel guilt and shame. So the whole thing is, you know, I I think a lot of people believe that what they need at the piano is confidence and this sense of unshakable approval. That is just a totally unstable foundation. And and maybe we'll have time to talk a little bit more about that. But but it's just a it's a roller coaster. So my what I would argue is, is the the thing that is way more useful than that is to figure out how to let go of needing to feel approval at all, needing self-esteem at all, needing to feel that we are worthy and letting go of that and just let it be what it is and um, just enjoy the music, just love it. Just Now, obviously, this is way, way easier said than done. And every single day that I sit at the piano, I am still practicing that. But the th- like, uh, maybe I, I haven't said, I, I, I may not have ever said this in any of my podcast episodes because a lot of people might listen to this and go, 
Yeah, but who are you? Who are you that, that you're saying all of this stuff? Why should we listen to what you're saying? All I can say, as humbly as is possible, is that people really seem to like my playing and people come to me because they want lessons from me because they love the qualities of my playing. So what I'm saying to you as like as a teacher and as someone who's sort of giving advice is that all my life I have consciously and subconsciously worked in pretty much every moment at the piano, not just on can I play the notes, but all my life I've worked on the psychology of it. I've worked on on how, how do I play in the way that people love? How do I play in the way that I love? And pretty much every day that I sit at the piano, I, in some way or another, I'm working with these kinds of things that I'm talking about today. I've spent my whole life working with these things. When I look at a lot of my students who play, I think very often, very, very often, it's the total norm for them never to have thought about all this kind of stuff and that the primary thing that they are doing, they are playing because they're locked in trying to get approval from a teacher, from who they're playing towards, from themselves, and it's, it doesn't really work. And, and I kind of learned this a long, long time ago. And this is why I sort of become very evangelical about this. But it's very difficult very often to persuade people about this. And now, Here's self-determination theory that proves it. I hate the word proof. That, that has so much evidence, so much strong, strong evidence that this, because when people are stuck in this kind of, no, I have to, yeah, I mean, it's so common with, with um, my adult students, especially men, I think, because I think to be male in our culture is so much about pr proving our masculinity through our ego and competence. It's so, Oh, it's so complicated, but that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but it's, you know, people don't want to let go of it. So anyway, where I was coming back to, um, most people don't even notice when that happens. It's just normal. So something that's very, very interesting. Uh, again, it, this is buried deep, deep in the books. Um, there are ways to measure basically, uh, uh, what, what's the term for it? It's like mindfulness, but like people can have um, levels of mindfulness on a moment by moment basis. So not that you've meditated, not you've sat down and done mindfulness, but that people have natural levels of, you know, they're, they're on the spectrum of having natural levels of mindfulness. Now, it's interesting that when you measure how much mindfulness people have, there is a giant correlation between that and measures of autonomy. So the more mindfulness you have, the more autonomous you're gonna feel. Isn't that interesting? Mm. And so I think that's because the more mindful you are, the more you're gonna notice when you get wrapped up in your ego. And yeah. you're gonna notice that's not very useful. It's not very helpful. Mm. Um, anyway, I've just done an awful lot of talking. Any... Sorry, can I just ask you a question on that? So yeah, yeah. with the um, interjection and then intrinsic motivation, so I would say at the moment for me, piano, a huge part of it, I hate to admit it, but it's true, is introjection. I yes. want the approval. It is my ego. That's why partly I go to the piano meetups also for the social because that's lovely. Um, yeah. But it is so that I, you know, hopefully get people saying, oh, I really enjoyed your playing today. And it's great, you know, yes. and it does give me that kind of, oh, yeah, no, okay, I'm getting I'm getting better almost yes. like validation. Right. Yes. But then with um, with other things that I like, because I, I think with piano, I think I have to work hard and I know work hard is not the right thing to say, but I think I have to work hard to be good at it, where there are other things in my life where I don't have to work so hard and I'm naturally good at it. And because I feel like it's I'm naturally good at it. And so I'll take uh, the example, which is dancing, so Zumba particularly. Um, I know that I'm good in that class. 
And so when people say, oh, oh, you, you dance really well, I'm like, oh, thank you. But it doesn't, it doesn't, I, I'm just like, oh, thanks. But I'm, I'm in the class just absolutely enjoying it. And then I get more compliments because I'm just in the zone, if you see what I mean. But it's almost like a level of competency that I feel. So I can do that yes. one and this one I'm struggling with. Yes. So, yeah. Yes. So, yeah, I love that you mentioned that. And it's, it's so challenging because there's so much of this theory that I want to talk about all at the same time. And it's all massively jumping around in my head. And I'm so excited about all of it. And I'm having to go, <laughs> right, OK, so for the moment, I then just focus on this one thing. So there were so many things you mentioned that, that I just want to look at. But <clears throat> let's, let's look at the last one, which was basically competency. So three basic psychological needs mm -hmm. which influence our motivation. Autonomy, competency and relatedness. Now, yes, when we feel a sense of competence, we have way more motivation. So mm -hmm. anything that we do that we feel, oh, I'm really good at this, boom, we want to do it. We want to do that thing. Exactly. So that's huge, which then makes music so challenging because, yes. um, and this is something that I've been talking about for a long time with my students, because when I was looking at this basic framework and immediately saw autonomy, competency and relatedness, my first thought is, who defines competence? How do we know when we feel competent? Now, this is a very slippery thing because, you know, it's classical music. And, and when I'm talking about <clears throat> um, music and learning music, for the most part, I'm talking about classical music. But I do, I play rock, I play jazz, I play all different kinds of stuff. But most of the time when I think about this, you know, this really deep um, teaching, learning stuff, it is classical. With classical music, it is a never ending, very, very steep mountainous path. That's how it can feel. And that's the danger of it. The danger of it is we never feel competent because there's always people on this way higher level than us. And it's always so much to do. And so we just go, well, I'm just not any good. And so that's why when I was very young, I think I was about 10 years old, I'm, I made this what felt like to me this sort of very deep. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, like a like a Buddhist awakening, enlightenment. It's sort of like one enlightenment aha moment that, that I just realized was so important, which was that every moment I was practicing, I had to really, really feel in my bones, in my body, in my mind. I had to feel that everything I did was fundamentally good enough. And I don't mean good enough like, oh, that will do, any old rubbish will do. But like, what I do is good. It's great. It has value. Yeah, there's always going to be amazing people. There's always going to be people who, who make me like look like I'm barely started on the path. But I reminded myself, why do we play music? We play music to communicate emotions, to enjoy it, to love it. We do not learn music to to master a skill and show off to everyone how good a skill we can do. And if that is why we do music, it's meaningless. That, that is not a good reason for learning music. You know, if we, if we really want to be good at music, even if we do that, and if we play in a way where we just play the most amazing selections of notes very, very quickly, most people aren't going to enjoy it. 
And then that negates the whole purpose for learning music. If we want to be an amazing musician, that people go, they are an amazing musician, we have to reach them, we have to touch them, they, they have to feel something. And so I was telling myself from a young age, that's what matters and I'm always good enough. Because it's always easy to be intimidated by other people who can do a million better things than you can. And more to the point, someone else could turn around and point at you and go, well, you're no good. And if you're not careful, you could listen to them and go, yeah, you're right, I should listen to what you're saying because you know what you're talking about, I'm nothing. Now, classical music is so easy and so dangerous to, to, to fall into basically projecting out, yeah, I'm not competent because all these other people are saying I have to do this, I have to do that, but music, what is music? Music is not a thing that we use to demonstrate our competence. It's, it's, I mean, I suppose it, it kind of can be, but that's when it's unhealthy. And, and when it is used in that way, it's, it's maybe a little bit more like a competition within ourselves. Uh, there was a book that I loved as, uh, when I was young, which, which I was already doing all of these things, but it, it was sort of like, a, it fed back to me, yeah, I'm doing the right things. And it was called The Inner Game of Music. And it came from a book called The Inner Game of Golf and The Inner Game of Tennis. And, um, and I loved games like that, uh, you know, sports like that, especially tennis, because, you know, the, the book, The Inner Game of Tennis sort of made this point that when you watch a tennis match, Obviously, there is a match between two people and there's a competition between two people. But much more interestingly, there is a, there is a, a competition, there is a war between a person and themselves. Mm. And that's the much more interesting competition. Yes. <laughs> and you see that very clearly when you're watching tennis. Oh my oh, God! Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> and and yeah, I I and, uh, yeah, I love that in sports. It is. It's the inner yeah. battle. Now, when we do watch, like for for at the moment, there happens to be the Clyburn competition on. I love watching piano competitions, but it's not because like oh, you know, how can we externally judge this these people, and how can you know that's what music is all about? No, what I love is it's the inner battle with people with themselves of like under pressure where everyone is telling me like that there's so much pressure that I've got to deliver. I have all this extrinsic motivation. My career hinges on, on all of this. My parents want me to do well. The, the, what I find fascinating under that pressure, how much can you let go of all of that stuff mm. and just love it? That's what I find fascinating. Yeah, that's the difference between <laughs> people who don't and do choke. Yes. Isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And now what I'm arguing is that what I started doing is, uh, from very young, from the age of 10, is I practiced that every single day. Because what you mentioned before, and this is another thing that I wanted to kind of jump on, yeah. when you were talking about, oh, you know, like, yes, I have so much, uh, so much extrinsic motivation of like thinking about the ego when I practice, like, like that was really bad. So do I, so does everyone. Okay. Nobody, <laughs> nobody is like a Buddhist enlightened being that doesn't have that stuff. And the thing that motivates me to sit down and practice is reward. It's like, I wouldn't sit down on my piano bench and practice if I wasn't visualizing people uh, like me performing and going, Bob, that was amazing. I wouldn't do it. <laughs> but the moment I'm sat on the bench and, mm. and my fingers touch the keys, I then very, very deliberately and consciously practice. Now I let that go. Yes. Okay. Because if that stays in my mind, yes. I will not play well. That's a good way of, of saying, I think that's a really, really um, nice way of and, putting it. And then even when I am doing that, 
it is always there. I'm always having that that pressure、yeah. of oh my god, oh someone would say that was right, you know. Like, I'm not yeah, sure yeah. we'd exactly have that voice, but we all have an inner critic,、yeah. all the time, and it never shuts up. <laughs> so as I'm practicing, somewhere in my mind will be that was no good. That that was that was great. That that was no good. Uh, yeah, and uh, uh, um, and um, so the trick is to practice how to let that be there, but ignore it and not listen to it. You can never get rid of it. And again, this has so many similarities and crossovers with meditation, because when you meditate. A lot of people, I think, have this misunderstanding that you meditate to to quieten the mind and to and to stop it.、No. Now, quietening the mind and stopping the mind can happen, but it's a byproduct. It's a byproduct of of what you're doing. It's not the goal. And if you make it、yeah. the goal, it will not happen. So, so the, the really like the 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 goal in in as much as meditation can be said to have had a goal, because in in many ways. What we want with meditation is intrinsic motivation,、um, mm. where it doesn't really have a goal. But but it's paradoxical, and like with with a lot of deep truth, there's paradox. So so to meditate, what we do is we just observe everything. We observe everything, and we let it be there. So if the mind is going blah 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 blah, we let the mind go blah 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 blah. And we just watch it. We just observe it. And we maybe laugh at it. And then we watch ourselves watching it, and you know it's it's very meta,、yeah. as, as a lot of people say. You、so. don't attach to it. You don't.、Yeah. You don't sort of if you're if you're meditating, for example, and then you have this little voice that comes into your head. Why do you bother practicing the piano? Like you're terrible. Like <laughs> what, you haven't really improved over this last year. Why do you even bother?、Yeah. Instead of being like, oh my god, yeah, that's right. I'm still terrible. It's okay. I'm still learning. You, know, yeah. you don't have to answer or, it. Just, or, or, or there's that, there. or there's、Shush. that, or there's that voice that 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 keeps going on about why am I doing this? And you, yeah, you don't identify with、exactly. it. It's just oh, it's that voice. So、yeah. something I say to my students, like when they're nervous and performing, is you know imagine. And I think I might have mentioned this in some of my other podcasts, but imagine—did we do this in the last、uh, when we were doing the Chopin?、Awesome. You know, imagine we we did. Imagine someone who you have no respect for, <laughs> who you like, you would just go, "You're a ridiculous person."、Um, You might feel a bit guilty for doing that, but but you know, it's it's someone that you wouldn't have much respect for, and they decide to come and. Like stand behind you and go. That's no good. That's no good. Why are you doing that? Well, you can't possibly be any good at that. But you know that what they're saying is just nonsense because they're just doing it to wind you up, and you don't respect them, and no one respects them. That's how you treat the voice in your head because、mm. it is just a voice in your head, and you don't have to listen to it. But most people immediately believe it and, and、yeah. fuse with it.、Um, now it's funny because when you said, you know, we don't want to attach and we don't want to identify, what I see as well, and this happens so often, not just in meditation, but with my students, and I point a lot of this kind of stuff out, and then because they they interject and go. Right, so I I want to work out how to be really good so that I have my approval and <laughs> and and the approval of other people. And when I explain this, they're like, right, I'm going to be really good at this for the same reasons.、Yeah. So so like if we decide, okay, I'm not going to. So imagine with with meditation, and you you know that you have the best meditation and the most insight and the best experiences when you just observe. But don't attach to to the feelings, the sensations. You can notice. Oh, I, there's sadness, rather than oh my god, I feel so sad. It's horrible. I want to get rid of this feeling. It's just、yeah. oh, there's that sensation, and and you don't even label it. It's just like you just notice all the physical sensations, 
you know, I could talk loads about this, but it's really for another podcast. What we all fall into is the trap sometimes of having had a great meditation and then you go this time, right, I'm going to work really hard at not attaching. <laughs> and that in itself is it's just pure attachment. It's, yeah, it's like you want that it. great meditation. Yeah. So then you're like, right, I'm not going to attach. I'm not going to attach. Instantly, well, what are you doing? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and it's like that with, with piano. It's, this is why this is like a, a never-ending journey of every day that I am practicing. Every time I sit down at a piano, there's that deep ego desire to be good. Mm -hmm. And I have to keep finding every day new ways of going, ah, I see you this time and you've tried sneaking up in my blind spot there. And sometimes I don't notice it for weeks. Sometimes I'll practice for weeks and then, and then you know, um, kick myself and go, how did I not see for weeks? I was so driven by ego and and, and, you know, really wanting to do well because, because I got so wrapped up in it and I didn't notice. And actually, I'm trying to practice this every single day, but it has this way of sneaking up in your blind spot all the time. Um, the very first time I did a, a 10-day meditation retreat, I almost burst out in loud laughter at, at around day five because I was just... Um, so so in, in, like in Buddhism, they, they call it sometimes the monkey mind. And it's this like incessant, mischievous chattering no, 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 that, that constantly wants your attention and will do everything it can in a sneaky way to get your attention. And I started laughing at just like, oh my God, it's so sneaky. It's trying to do everything it can to pull my full attention away from just, you know, focusing on my breath or whatever it is that, you know, that, that was the, and, and normally in meditation, you focus on your breath and you focus just on the physical sensation, just as a way that, that, yeah, that the mind is going blah, 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 blah. But it's just, oh, it's like, and it will pull you. But you go, but then you just come back. You center yourself on the breath as a way of reminding yourself you are, you don't have to be centered in this endless blah, 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 blah. Mm. And that's what that can be like when we're playing the piano. There's this part of us going, you have to play well. That's no good. You've, you've got these demands on you. What happens if that doesn't go well? And what happens if this goes well? And blah, blah, blah. And most people don't want to disconnect from that. Mm. But... Um, so, yeah, I think this is why um, mindfulness is such a strong index of autonomy, because true autonomy is the, you, you notice the mind going, well, you should be doing that. You should be doing this. And why aren't you doing that? And you go, oh, yeah, my mind's doing that. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. That's real autonomy. Mm. <laughs> and that's deep. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Yeah, it's a lot to be aware of, isn't it? It's you have to be very aware of what your mind is doing, which, as you say, it can be weeks before you realize, mm, oh, hang on mm. a minute. Um, <laughs> but I do really like the fact that you've said that um, it is okay to feel motivated when you're not playing the piano. So it's almost like a motivation with the, getting the approval of people and even yourself to make you sit down yes. at the piano, ready to practice. That but works actually, for me. Yeah, just to get you to sit down. Because they used to say this with yoga as well, like the hardest thing to do is get on the mat. Yes. Once you're on the mat, you're fine. Yes. Yeah. The hardest thing to do with a run is start it kind of thing. So it's the same with the piano, actually. I find this a lot is the hardest thing is to sit down. Yes. And actually just start doing it. Yes. And then, so, but when you're starting to, when you're actually practicing and, and everything, that's when you need to start practicing letting go of the approval of everything and finding what you love. Yes. And working on the intrinsic motivation. Yes. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I mean, again, there's, there's a lot of layers to this, but that won't work for everybody. Um, but it works for me because I'm very competitive 
very perfectionistic and very achievement orientated. Not everyone's going to be like that. So I use that to make me sit down in the way that I like it. And then I, I heard someone else use this exact same metaphor. And I've been using it for years, but I heard someone use this exact same metaphor with the exact same thing. It's like imagine a, a space shuttle and it has booster rockets and then it loses those booster rockets as it, as it sort of goes almost mm. into orbit. So for me, the booster rocket is the ego of, right, I want to be really good. And then I sit down and then those go. Yeah. Um, but um, that may not work for other people. And actually, if we look at the other needs, so we've got autonomy, competency and relatedness. I guess really in many ways, that is my desire for competency, kind of making me sit down. Um, but also, you know, some competitiveness. Um, but then once I'm sitting down, I'm looking for the love. And so other people may not be driven so much by um, uh, their sense of achievement and competition um, because you, you have these, these other needs and particularly relatedness is something that I, I want to, if we have time, talk, yeah, talk a lot about. Because in many ways, I think that competency and relatedness can be really, really oppositely linked. Like that, they are, you know, the more you have of one, the less you have of the other in many ways. Um, not completely, but I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that. So um, when we play music, I think that, that in many ways the purest sense of what we do when we play music is that we, the, the way that I feel when I'm playing uh, particularly classical music, but I think all music, is that the music, it's like a sentient being. It's like um, another kind of analogy I use with people is imagine you have a very, very good friend and they've had a long dramatic day with all kinds of drama and stuff going on. And, and you, you both sit down, have a glass of wine and you go, tell me about your day. And your friend goes, well, blah, 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 blah. Now to me, when I'm playing a piece, it feels very, very, very strongly as if I've sat down with my friend and my friend goes, this is what my day's been like. And I'm just listening. I'm just empathizing and listening. And so when I'm sitting down and playing, the music I'm playing is like that friend and everything flows through me. So it's not that I am making the music. It's not that I feel the emotions and the emotions come out of me, uh, out of my body into the fingers and I make the music happen. It's much more like I listen and my whole being resonates as I would if I was listening to a friend telling me about their dramatic day. Um, that's relatedness. That's like... Uh, feeling connection. And uh, so when I sit down and I start to practice my piece of music, I do my absolute best to let go of thoughts about competency. Uh, and it is a practice every single day. It's like, is that good enough? Is that good enough? And every day I have to practice letting that go um, and focusing more on, do I feel connected? Do I love it? Do I love every moment? Am I, am I really empathizing with and listening and understanding what my friend is saying? Do I want to be doing that? You know, that's true music and that's what we want to be practicing in every single moment. And it's a very difficult thing sometimes to explain and sum up. So this is why I said before, competency and relatedness in many ways for me pull against each other. Think about when you are with a friend and you're really, you feel absolutely connected and bonded with your friend. How concerned are you with a sense of competency? And when you are thinking really, really hard about competency and trying very hard to be competent, how much are you feeling a sense of connectedness? They, they, they are kind yeah. of opposites for me.
Yeah, no, I see what you mean. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. And I find that very interesting. And since I've become aware of, of that in, in um, SDT, I've been, uh, I still can't, I take that seriously, <laughs> and, 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 and I perform. I've actually tried performing where I, where I become aware. Am I trying to be competent or am I connecting? And the more aware I become of that, the better I perform under pressure in front of people. Because when we are performing in front of people, the natural thing our nervous system wires us to do is go, be good, be competent. But, but the more we can consciously go, oh, I'm trying really hard to be competent, but mm. that's not my goal right now. My goal is to connect. That's so powerful. No, that absolutely makes sense. Again, for me, for the dancing, it, it's, it absolutely makes sense because the minute I start dancing, competency, like I'm never thinking, am I good enough? I'm yes. just loving every single moment. Exactly. So I would encourage people, like, if the piano isn't where you're feeling these things, because I certainly don't, think of another area in your life where you might feel, because for me, dancing, mm. I feel all three of these things. Yes. I'm not a trained dancer at all. Like really in the grand scheme of the, you know, the whole world, I'm not a great dancer, but that doesn't matter. I experience all of those three things, but on the piano, I don't. Yes. So it's, yeah. It's but if you wanted to be a ballet dancer, it'd be a lot harder, right? Definitely. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and this classical is the, pro this is the problem with classical piano. <laughs> and this is like, you know, in many ways, like I, I want to make a course at, at some point for people on how to be a good student. Because the moment that, that we're learning, especially classical music, where the levels are so high mm. and there's so much for, for a teacher to constantly keep saying, and that can improve and this can improve and that can improve. It's so, so easy to immediately fall into, right, my whole reason for doing this is to be competent. And actually, you know, recently, for the first time in a long, long time, I've got a, I've got a new teacher. And so um, uh, most of what I'm doing with my new teacher is looking at quite advanced jazz and composition. And let me tell you guys that for a couple of weeks, I was plunged into a major psychological crisis, which after two weeks, I was like, oh my God, Bob, what are you doing? Just you're, you, you, practice, practice you're good enough. Because I was like, well, I'm just obviously rubbish because mm. my teacher's so good and I have such a long way to go. And I'm like, oh my God, why, why am I even bothering? And but, but I feel it, when I sit with it, piano for it, you. And, and, but it all <laughs> became about, about competency. And it was interesting because like, uh, you know, you were there a couple of weeks ago when I did some sort of jazz improvisation. Yeah, yeah. And I was just like, well, that was rubbish. No. But everyone was like, oh, that, I love that. That was great. Yeah. Because the whole purpose of it was that I did connect. I know that I connected when I was doing it. But then afterwards, I was just focusing on what wasn't competent enough about it yet. So, you know, for me, I'm still working on this and it sneaks up on you. And, but, you know, this is the thing. If you do not consciously watch for this stuff um, and in, if you are not practicing this in some way or another every single day, this is why an awful lot of people are going to be, why can't I get better at this? Why don't I mm. feel? And, and to me, I feel that when you do this stuff, that is the definition of someone who is talented, who is gifted, who is just naturally good at it. Uh, yeah, so, so basically, uh, you know, watching for a clinging, a clinging to competency. And, and uh, hopefully many of you have listened to the podcast that, that I did on the left brain and the right brain, where the left brain hemisphere literally clings and grasps. 
And I think that, that the left brain hemisphere is basically mostly concerned with competency. It's like, it's like the left brain hemisphere's primary psychological need is competency and the right brain hemisphere's primary psychological need is relatedness. So um, when we focus on relatedness, we're focusing on the right hemisphere primary need over the left hemisphere primary need. So this sense of sort of fundamentally not feeling good enough in, in everything that you're doing, um, there, there's a psychological theory and I'm trying to remember what it's called, but it's talked about all the time, which is basically, you can neither feel, I can't do that. I'm just no good at that. I'm inherently not able to do that. Um, or, well, I, I, I could do the growth mindset. Yeah, it's, it's having a growth mindset. Um, and uh, so, so the opposite of that is, well, I could do that, but I can't do it yet. But I could do it. All I need is either the right teacher or the right approach, or I need to practice it. And, and, and so, you, you, yeah, it's basically uh, that, that you, you have a growth mindset or like a closed mindset. And I think that in classical music and in, and in music in general, um, but particularly classical, because it's, it's so easy to internalize your teacher saying, oh, you can't do this yet, you can't do that yet, you can't do that yet, that, that you start to think that your entire reason for playing is to be able to do all the things that your teacher's giving you. But really, when I am teaching a student, from my perspective, the reason why I am teaching is not to make them to a good enough level. It's not to make them, oh, you, are, you have now graduated. <laughs> you, are now, you are now able to join the, the, the society of pianists. You are, you are good enough. You can have the badge. No, the whole reason is we love music. I hear you play music and there's always something to love in, in the, the way that, that everybody plays. But what I'm hearing is that you could play in a way that is even more lovable if you do the things that I show you. But it's very, very difficult to keep reminding people of that when I teach and to keep reminding ourselves that when we're a student. Yeah, it's that kind of idea of what you're doing is already good enough, but here's a, here's a way to enhance it further. Yes, yes. But you never feel like that. The yes. the enhance further, but yeah, everyone understands that. That's yes. the, you know, I want to get better part, but the I'm already good enough part, yes. no. <laughs> and, and the last, um, at least the last two times that, that Cheryl here has performed in public, it has been superb. And many people have commented how good it is. But you... You yourself are like, that wasn't good enough. That's, I just sat that's right you. here just going, no, just as you said that. I was like, absolutely not. Thank you, though. But so, no. so can you see why you need to work on this? Yes. Because if you don't work on that, you are losing out on some of the motivational juice that makes you want to sit down and practice. And also, the more that we play, because, you know, over and over again, what self-determination theory um, that shows overwhelming evidence for is that the more that we are working with intrinsic motivation that hinges on these three core psychological needs, the more that, that we're on the, the good side of it, the by overwhelmingly, the better we perform. Mm. So the more that you believe what you're doing is, is not good enough, the less well you are going to perform. It's a thing you can yeah. practice. No, definitely. And actually, I, I want to go back because I, I keep meaning to talk about this. And, and I, was, I wanted this to naturally and organically come back in, but I'm, I'm not sure if, if I'll get this opportunity. Something that is interesting. And um, Dan Pink 
uh, I think, talks about this in the podcast that he did, because he wrote a great book on all of this called Drive, I think. The, the, what's it called? Something like The Surprising S- the Secrets of What Motivates You. But, but he wrote the, this great book, and, and there's a, a really good TED talk they did. And uh, by the way, I'm going to leave links for all of the, these things that I'm referring to in the show notes, which are on heartofthepiano.com. So basically, something that he points out, which is very, very interesting, which is that if you are doing things which are predominantly left-brained. So they don't involve creativity. They don't involve sort of coming up with new solutions for things. They are simple, linear, clear, structured things to do that that don't require any kind of divergent thinking, uh, as they call it. Then um, extrinsic motivation actually works better. So extrinsic motivation works for kicking the, the left brain hemisphere uh, uh, up the bottom, basically. But anything that is remotely right brain hemisphere that requires creativity, coming up with, with a more um, un- unusual thing, that is not just a simple black, white, do this, do that, get that, then extrinsic motivation spectacularly fails and, per- and, and performance output is terrible. So which one do we need for the piano? <laughs> but but so but so almost all my adult students so strongly interject that like these are beliefs that they just have that they're so hard to to get them to change their internal beliefs about believe that the what they need to be motivated to get better is this you know extrinsic just work harder just practice like that. Just, you know, whatever your teacher said, just work harder on that thing. Fight harder to get that sense of achievement and reward. And uh, yeah, this does not work, no. which is why I'm always nagging my students about this. And which is why for a long time I was thinking, well, the answer is left brain hemisphere, right brain hemisphere. It's so clear to me, all the left brain hemisphere stuff doesn't work. But here, self-determination theory explains even more why this doesn't work with so much academic research in work and school environments and other environments and sports that show definitively that this just doesn't work. And actually, one one reason why I thought it would be really interesting to to talk to you about this, I think as a person, (laughs) you strike me as someone who has very high levels of personal autonomy. Yeah, you know, like in your life, you you are very, um, I, I think, out of so many people that I know, I think that you would push against circumstances that sort of threaten sense of autonomy, uh, which is, I think, why yeah. you play so well. Oh, well, thank you for saying that. Um, oh, that's interesting. Okay. Do you mean, so I've had well, my, my piano teacher from home, actually. <laughs> so she said to me, uh, she describes me as a warrior. I was like, uh, not as somebody who, war- well, I do worry a lot, not, not so much. W-A, anymore, not W-O. Exactly, yes. <laughs> exactly. War. Yeah, a war. <laughs> not yeah, anxiety. Yeah. Somebody who, um, I'm, not the, I'm not somebody who, conf- like, I don't like the pressure of conforming. Yes. If I don't like the idea of something, I won't do it. Yeah. yeah so yeah. I've noticed I'm quite different to yes. a lot of people in that. Yeah. Is that what you yes, sort of mean? Yes, that's exactly what I mean. Oh, okay, then. Whereas I think a lot of people who learn classical piano are like, right. I'm going to show everyone how good I am at this. And I said, did, did I mention the good girl pose, which happens so often in, in female students? So, or, 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 or then with men who are doing it, it's like, yeah, I, I want to achieve and be really good at this. Um, rather than, 
Um, I feel, and, and all my life I've been, I think, very, very consciously rebellious, which is like, in many ways, I don't care if people say, you're not doing that right, you're not doing that well. Uh, all my life, I, I, I think, because, you know, I was very unusually into classical music at a very young age, which a lot of people found very strange. And at that age, I was highly, highly, highly rebellious that most people see classical music as this thing that you have to do with very seriously and it has to be at a very high level and people are going to judge you and you have to feel very stiff and restricted, especially, in, you know, and when you go to a concert hall, it's all very stiff and it's all, you know, about you know, so much tradition and so much, so much unspoken societal mm. norms yeah. to do with it. But to me, no, it's all about deep emotions. Yeah. It's all about, like, it's, it's raw, yeah. raw emotions. And, and I've been rebellious all my life. Classical music <laughs> is not how most people see it, even classical musicians yes. who sort of somewhere deep inside sort of, I think, still have sort of subconscious um, societal sort of things about what it needs to be. Um, no, Class. I'm highly rebellious. So like, you know, when I was like 18, I was a heavy metal guitarist and I loved, you know, playing piano with long hair and looking like a rocker. And I, I felt very, very strongly, you know, like this. It's don't put this music in this cultural straitjacket in the way that most mm. people see it. And I, in many ways, I want my students to be really, really rebellious. And some of my favorite students and ones that other students would hate that basically question everything I tell them to do. I love that. Mm. That's kind of what I want in a student. Right. I, want, I want it to come from deep inside. Yeah. And, and, and you know, and, and again, you know, I, I, like recently, it's the first time I've had a, a, a teacher in a long, long time. And oh, my God, it's so hard to suddenly because suddenly I'm like, oh, my God, this has to be good. That has to be good. I want so hard because what is the reason I've got a teacher? I've purposefully paying, you know, a lot of money and, you know, I don't feel uh, flush with money at the moment. And so I'm, I'm spending a lot of my resources on a teacher because I've decided in my mind, right, I have this goal. I have this extrinsic goal. I want to be good at this thing. And then, right. And so to be good at this thing, I want to do this, that, that, that. And then before I know it, my entire psychology has been sucked into like, mm. uh, you know, ego, specific goals. Am I good enough? Am I not good enough? Am I competent? Am I not competent? So, you know, so something else, there's this thing in um, Zen Buddhism called beginner's mind. And I love this concept of beginner's mind because I think that most of the time when I'm learning and practicing and, and when it's going well, I have let go of am I competent? And instead of am I competent, it is just like, am I connecting with the music? And then I don't care if it's competent because I'm, it's, it's, the, it's a process. It's a, I'm exploring. It, 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 it might not be good enough. It might be terrible, but it's a journey and I'm enjoying the journey. I don't care. I literally do not care if it's competent or not competent. Mm. I'm just enjoying the process of discovering what there is to love in the music. Um, who is the, the music? What can I love in it? How much more can I discover? I don't care if it's competent. I literally do yeah. not care. And, and that is music at its purest. Because the more you approach it from that, from that way, the more competent you actually will be as a side product of approaching it in that way. Yeah.
I think what's the sort of slightly related to this is not self-determination theory, but it is another academic theory. Um, have you heard of Brene Brown? She's become a bit yes, popular. Yes. <laughs> yes. But uh, she's a qualitative researcher vulnerability. in vulnerability. Yes. Exactly. And just some of the things that this, this has come, my, this thought has come through a couple of times, but I'll say it now. Um, is that this element of vul vulnerability, particularly with adults, I think. And men. Uh, yeah, sure. I can't speak for that, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> is yeah that, that sort of getting to a point where you as you were saying just then you don't care you're in the relatedness you're exploring mm. you know you're doing this primarily for yourself you're enjoying every second of it but that comes with not with a letting go of feeling vulnerable or, or kind of getting over that if that makes sense yeah but also at the same time well, well actually to be vulnerable is exactly what you need yes yes <laughs> yeah. No, I, I could not agree more with you. And the thing is that the vulnerability is one of the core right brain hemisphere core feelings. And so, yes, I, I wanted to agree with you and say we absolutely should not be trying to get over vulnerability. We should be willing to embrace it. Yeah. And the whole point, especially for men, the whole point of vulnerability is it can feel overwhelming and like something that we want to push away and something that society teaches so much of us we shouldn't feel. And sometimes it can be very, very challenging and difficult mm. to lean into that feeling and stop trying to push it away because Definitely. that's what we need in music. We need yeah. to feel vulnerable, unless you're playing heavy metal, in, in which case you probably don't want vulnerability as a feeling. <laughs> it does depend okay. on the genre of music that you're playing. But when you're playing classical music, you absolutely yeah. need vulnerability, absolutely. Um, and then following on from that, Kristin Neff, uh, and again, I'm going to put um, links to all of this. Kristin Neff is, a, is the major academic studying compassion and about, um, uh, and again, like self-determination theory, there's so much hard science behind what she does to do with compassion that the more you have, and particularly self-compassion, the more self-compassion you practice and you do, um, as opposed to being very harsh and self-critical, the better you perform in measurable ways. Mm. Um, and this, again, is a practicable skill. So, you know, what I want to come back to is that this is not just airy-fairy, abstract, woo-woo stuff to talk about. These are practicable skills that actually, when I sit down and practice, I can practice being aware of, is my primary motivation, motivational goal to feel competent or to feel related. And that is a thing I can practice. Now also there's the issue of mindfulness. Mindfulness is a massive skill that can be practiced, but that's for a whole different podcast. And actually, if you listen back to some of the earlier podcasts that I've done, because I don't think I remind people about this uh, enough, I, there are actually guided meditations for pianists to use at the piano. So if you're interested in this, try some of them out. They're, they're in earlier episodes. But, but yes, <clears throat> mindfulness, corresponds with feelings of autonomy, which corresponds with intrinsic motivation. So, you know, it all ties together. We can practice mindfulness. How you practice that, you know, listen back to earlier podcasts or maybe, you know, future podcasts, I'm going to talk about this more. I think that for me, when I feel autonomous, it is a feeling in the body. It's not just an abstract thing in my mind. I know what it feels like when I feel I am my own person willingly doing what I want in life. And I know that there is a different feeling in my body when I'm like going, well, I guess I should be doing mm. these things. And, and, um, and, and then I start to feel if I don't do these things, I'm somehow 
incomplete and inadequate as a person and and that yeah that that's a feeling I know all too well in in my body mm. um, and I know what it feels like in my body when I'm you know grudgingly doing something uh, that I don't you know agree with what do you think about that show oh gosh absolutely definitely yeah mm. um, it's it's horrible when you when you, there's some things in life where you have to do them, you know, you mm. have to do them. So a good example of this is actually um, sports, you know, keeping fit, you know, yeah. Again, when the, these authors in self-determination theory and they look at people who are exercising to keep fit and they do questionnaires, why are they doing this? Mm. The more they are doing this because they have to, to be healthy, the less they do it, the, oh, because they're less motivated, yes. they don't do it as much. But when there's like, it feels good, they do it more. Absolutely. So, <laughs> so for me recently, I've, I've changed the, the way that I approach, um, like, because keeping fit and everything is very important for me. I just, it, it's taken me a while to understand exactly how and what, what exactly I want to do. So I've actually just recently cancelled my gym um, membership because I hate waiting lifts. <laughs> uh, wait, uh, sorry, lifting weights, I should say. Yes. And um, I hate running on treadmills and I hate it all. And, you know, it's just horrible. Um, but um, instead, I'm doing things like climbing, which is another fantastic way of building up strength but it's fun so and I'm just uh, I've been doing that for a year and and I absolutely love it and so that's actually turning into an intrinsic motivation now I just love yeah. doing it yeah, which yeah, is yeah. great walking is the same running is not the same I do force myself to do that but that's just because you've got to do something uh, if I could swap that for Zumba then it would be fine but I haven't found another class yet but I, but I bet that when but, you are running you get physical sensations of enjoyment no None at all. Whatsoever. I really don't. I really don't like running. Yeah. No. I well. Sometimes some runs can. It depends. Some runs are better than okay. others. But most of the time, I'm like, I can't wait for this to be over. I am literally wow. doing it like that, that once won't last a week long, according to, to these guys. No, no. As soon as winter comes, <laughs> bonk, though, I will be doing it 100. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and that's their other point, which is that you know sometimes, sometimes extrinsic motivation works, mm. but it only works as a very short term thing, and yes. it's not sustainable. So that's another thing worth bearing in mind. And, you know, like motivating yourself to go running doesn't require lots of right brain hemisphere creativity and problem solving. It's just a thing you make yourself you do. just make yourself do yeah, it. Yeah, and yeah. you always know that you feel great after it. And it can only be like half And, an and hour, you so. may be more injury prone as a result of doing that in that way as well. Possibly. Because you may not be so aware of sensations. Mm. Um, so so if, if you've got time, there's a couple more things that, that I wanted to, um, to touch on as part of that. Yeah. Which is like I was going to say before, I think, what is, what does intrinsic motivation at its, in its purest essence, what does that look like and feel like? And so um, the authors point out that, like the prototype, that the absolute sort of, you look at it and you go, yeah, that is pure intrinsic motivation. Children playing. Yes. It's just, why do children play? They yeah. play just for the sheer enjoyment and, and yeah. joy and, yeah. you know, there, there's no... Um, Oh, I should be doing this. And, and actually, you know, and, and this is something that comes up over and over and over again in, in all of their findings. If you take an activity that people are doing just because they enjoy doing it for no reason other than they enjoy doing it, and you start giving them rewards for doing it, they immediately stop doing it mm. unless they're being given rewards. That so That's the quickest way that. to stop people doing something that, that was intrinsically enjoyable. I wonder if that would so, apply to smoking. No, i <laughs> <laughs> uh, Well, it's funny because when I did give up smoking, all of the thoughts of it's not healthy for you, it's bad for you, blah, yeah. blah, blah. The thing that did it for me in the end was just 
so strongly imagining how much more enjoyable it was going to feel as a non-smoker. Um, uh, yeah. yeah. So that was what did it. Oh, All of yeah. the other stuff did not work. Yeah. But I was like, yeah, just that sense of breathing and freedom and enjoying breathing and more active. And that was what did yeah. it for me. And so that was the a end brilliant. goal that, yeah. yeah well, that one. well, no, no, not the end goal. The feeling of enjoying being in my body. Mm, okay. So... Yeah, which which yeah. falls in line with 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 the theory. Mm. So 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 basically, you know, something that I say a lot of the time, for years, to my students is, imagine a child playing. That's do that at the piano. Um, is because why is it called playing the piano? <laughs> it's not seriousing the piano. It's not working the piano. It's playing the piano. It is play, but it's it's it, this can be work, if you want to call yeah. it that, it, it takes a lot of practice to figure out how to reliably play as adults at the piano. Isn't it interesting, like how we're all, we're all children once, and so we were all playing once, and that was so, in, you know, intrinsic to us yes. uh, to just easily play for no other reason than you play. Yeah. Um, I mean, some people would argue it's survival and whatever, but for, for now, you know, for playing, well, it serves well, it, it, an, an evolutionary yeah, is, advantage. Yeah. But but that's why they say that with the self-determination theory, intrinsic motivation works better. It still falls in with this whole evolutionary thing. That's why we play. Yeah, but that, absolutely, yes. But then as adults, it's almost like through our teenagers and then in, well into adulthood, that gets beaten out of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. You, you, you're only supposed to do things that achieve a goal. Yes. I've, I've actually, you remind me, I, I, uh, I, had, a, <laughs> I had a date a very long time ago uh, with a guy who made me laugh. Um, I said to him, oh, I play the piano. And he couldn't understand that I just played the piano. He was like, oh, are you teaching? Do you make money off it? I was like, no, I just play the piano for myself. I don't do anything. And he was Alarm like, bells. I was, yeah, no, I, was, I did not <laughs> see him again. I didn't see him again. But I just thought it was, I was like, my God, like, I... This is, it's funny that he, he very much had that brain of like, yes. if, you know, if you're, whatever you're doing with your time, if it's not like achieving an end goal, then why are you yes. doing it? I was like, so Whoa. according to self-determination theory, he's not maximizing his performance potential by doing that because either. Because you can see in that way, you know, I want my students who are driven by results and achievement to actually see that logically, this is how you do it. You, mm. you get there through intrinsic motivation and like and actually learning it. how to let go of this ego stuff because then you perform better. Yeah. Um, which, is, which is paradoxical. Yeah. And, and you know, from, from what you were saying before, well, I was talking in earlier episodes about this book, The Master and His Emissary, which talks about the two brain hemispheres, but also about the history of Western culture and philosophy with that context. And his central hypothesis of the entire book is that we live in a culture, in an age, where, where our culture has indoctrinated us that everything needs to be left brain hemisphere dominated. And, and your, that date is the epitome of that way mm. of thinking. And, and he argues in his book, that, that it's very clearly madness and wrong for us to be in that state. Um, and self-determination -determ theory comes up as well, uh, you know, and goes, well, it, it doesn't even work, you no. know. And so I think that there are other cultures, there's other cultures around the world where playfulness is just more part of the culture. Yeah. But I think it's a very Western thing that, dare I say, capitalist as well, 
It's, it's about production, being a good citizen. This might get a bit controversial, but it's, it's part of the culture that we live in to, to drive the, those kinds of intrinsic things out of us, to be good, functioning, producing, consuming adults. Yeah. Um, All for productivity and GDP. Yes. Um, <laughs> but but I, I do find that, so, so I, I do encourage people to go, what does autonomy feel like? And I think that one thing that really works for me in knowing you know, do I have, in, what does intrinsic motivation feel like? And um, it, again, in our culture, this word love is very, very distrusted, I think. And a lot of academics go, we can't define what that is. What is it? And, you know, in, in a business, if you talk about the word love and things like that, as opposed to output and, you know, <laughs> process, and people can go, oh, no, we don't have space for that. But, but to me, love is the absolute absolute embodiment and epitome of what intrinsic motivation feels like mm. and and that's why I'm always yeah. saying all the time look for what there is to love it's the essence of intrinsic motivation yeah. if, if you're not feeling it somewhere you've strayed into you're doing something not autonomously but because you're trying to either make someone else happy or you're trying to make some you're, you're trying to meet someone else's approval or um, at some point, you've internalized uh, experiences where people demanded things of you and you've now um, pretending that those people still exist and you're still trying to please them. Mm. And you just won't play music as well. You, you just won't. Yeah. Because music at its essence is the communication of love. And, mm. and, and one more like, really quick thing that I think is like, autonomy has a feeling in the body. We know when we feel autonomous. And I think that we know when other people are acting autonomously. And I think that we value authenticity. And when we think of people who have charisma, why do people have charisma? It's usually because they are really autonomous and that they are acting from, from deep within in ways that are authentic to them. When I listen to music I love, I really strongly believe that I am reacting to the feeling of autonomousness. Is that, is that a, a noun? Autonomy. Uh, I'm reacting to the feeling of autonomy in that person. It's, it's a physical sensation that, that you can communicate. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose for me it was, uh, it was clearer when you made the, playing, the children playing analogy. It's like you know when you can see it. You know when yeah. you see it happening, don't you? You're like, yeah. oh, it, there's something very, I don't know, I, don't, I can't even, if, I don't know if, if, if English has actually got the words to describe <laughs> it really, but yeah. it's like... You, it's like a, a feeling of you, you feel quite happy and you're, you're sort of amazed at the same time. Yeah. You, I don't know what it is exactly, but you know when you see somebody yes. who's doing something for the love of doing it. And isn't that what we get from an amazing music performance? Absolutely. So, so this is what I want to say, you know, as well, that whatever style of music you're playing, it's so already there when it comes to rock music and jazz. Obviously, like people know it's embedded culturally in, mm. the, in that music that you do it to communicate that sense of autonomy. But what I want to encourage as well is that to people learning classical music, be rebellious, put that in your music. Because when I play classical music, I really think that's what people respond to in my playing, that I'm not playing to be good at it. I'm playing from a deep place inside of me that is fundamentally rebellious, that is like this is deeply who I am and, and what I'm feeling through this classical music, not all the cultural baggage that it gives you, you know. And you do have to be rebellious with that because it's, it's, there's so much 
societal baggage that, that suddenly is just there, that, that every day I feel I have to work to, to keep letting go of. Mm. So, yeah, any last thoughts, Cheryl? Um, well, not entirely related to this, but you've touched on it, it was, uh, you know, with classical music particularly and, and all the cultural baggage that it, it holds. Um, it would be really nice to maybe do a, a podcast about that because I think what's really, really sad is that it is, classical music is in this like little box where people, I've had people, they assume that's the only style of music I like. It's strange. Mm. And, or that I'm some really posh person or yes, something. Yes. I'm like, well, I'm not. Um, so that, that's that. That's that. To, just to, to, to that, the but. average man and woman in the street, I think that the moment they hear classical music, and, and some people have said this to me, they just visualize people in costumes and wigs. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's what it, that's oh, what it no. means. That's what it equals. That's so, so sad. Um, <laughs> but yeah, this is absolutely something for a different podcast. Yeah. And I think me and Andy have talked about this on podcast, like right at the beginning. Like yes, I think you ago. did, actually. But, um, yes. but, but yeah, absolutely. At some point, I want to talk about this. But yeah, so hopefully if you've stayed with us uh, all the way through, hopefully I've really convinced you in a way that you now autonomously <laughs> agree that, that this is so important. And, um, and actually, I did ask Cheryl to come with some music ready to play so that we could do the practical application of some of this stuff. Maybe next time we can actually show how you practice these ideas that have come up from self-determination theory. Because I've barely scratched the surface of it. This massive giant book, I've barely scratched the surface of it. But I, I want to show at some point how you actually practically take these ideas and practice them and actually make your music sound better. So for the next time, perhaps. Anyway, yes, thank you so much for listening and tuning in. And I know Cheryl has, has got to nip off somewhere. So uh, thank you very much, um, everyone. And see you at the next podcast. Uh, thank you. Bye. <laughs>